Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and I'm your host, Cole Sharman. Today, I'm at InfoSec Europe, and we are joined by Richard Merrigold. Richard is the Director of Group Data Protection at HomeServe. He is responsible for the protection of data across the European and UK business. He has recently developed and implemented a group-wide privacy framework in preparation for the buzzword GDPR, covering all aspects of compliance for over 4 million customers. Hope you enjoy. Beecher Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. So welcome Richard to the podcast, it's great to have you today. Thank you. How are you? I'm alright, thank you. How's your better Good to hear. So let's start off from the beginning. So where was you born? I was born in, uh, in Stratford-upon-Avon, so Shakespeare country. Yes. Um, not a thespian. <laughs> <laughs> I can't act. Um, yeah. That's a shame. That's a shame. Who are or were your parents? Uh, so my parents are Tony and Anna Merigold. Um, there are now four of them because they're separated. So I have my mum and my mum and Daryl, and my my dad and my stepmom. Okay. And what do you what did your what did your mum and dad do? Uh, so my, my so my dad and my stepdad were both in, in IT. Okay. So my my dad was a salesman for, for IBM for a number of years, yeah. and my stepdad was uh, an information security manager. Uh, my mum's an hairdresser. Interesting. Interesting. And did you grow up in Stratford on Avon? So born in Stratford on Avon, um, and then have either lived in or around Stratford on Avon for for the last thirty five years. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just, a, it's just a nice part of the world. It's, it's in the middle of everything as well. You are in the middle of the Midlands, so you can you can you can get anywhere from Stratford. So it's a, it's a nice place to be. And what was your education like? Uh, Education-wise, so I, I don't have a degree. Um, I went to uh, high school and then went into sixth form. Uh, took a, a GNBQ in, in business studies. Um, went to Birmingham University for a, a short period of time uh, and studied business information technology. Um, what I didn't realise when I signed up for the course um, was that that involved tautology, um, mathematics for computing uh, and C++ for anybody old enough to remember um, C++ coding, none of which I'd studied at any point before I got to degree level. Um, <laughs> so I left uni and then decided to get a job. Okay. And what was the first job you had then? Oh wow, first job. The first, first proper job I had was a uh, training watch seller for a luxury jewellers. Really? In town, yeah, yeah. So learning about Swiss watches and, and, and trying to sell Swiss watches to people. Yeah, interesting. And <laughs> that, that's very different <laughs> to what you do today. <laughs> that yeah. is very, very different. So how did we get here today at HomeServe? in terms of that journey towards data? It's a very, very good question. So, I always say to people, I don't think, I don't think anybody wakes up in the morning and says that they want to be a data protection officer. Yeah. Um, I, I had a, 
working as an account manager for a, for a private healthcare company. Um, we had a one of the largest private NHS contracts um, for um, scanning at the time, so MRI scans, PET scans, CT scans. Because of that contract, we had a very robust set of requirements under ISO 27001 and the IT toolkit. Um, so there was a, an information governance manager in place, and we had to do a lot of things. The entry to the building was very tight. The use of information was very tight. Obviously, there was a lot of rules around that. Um, the information governance manager was looking for for an assistant, so I applied. Interested, I wanted to, to to move around the business, try and find a different approach. Was working as her assistant for for about a year. They then wanted her to move into a different role in the business. There was no other person in the business that, that knew the structure and framework like myself and, and Alison. So they put me on a management training scheme um, for a year and then made me the information governance manager. Um, and then I've just carried on for the last eight, nine years um, from that point on and moved through a variety of NHS based pharmaceutical and, and commercial data protection roles um, mm. until we got here today. And why did you why did you come to HomeServe? Came to HomeServe because I wanted to branch away from from information governance and I wanted to break into the, into the commercial sector. Um, HomeServe was a very well placed business at the time. They'd had some regulatory troubles back in two thousand eight two thousand nine. The business was being restructured with compliance and regulation in mind. Uh, part of that compliance and re regulatory restructure was a focus on data protection. So they were they were ready to have um, advice, they were ready to have a framework in place. My the role that I was leaving employed me I think because they thought they should have somebody, not because they wanted to have somebody. And I never really got any traction in that business. Everything that I wanted to do they never wanted to do. They wanted them to tick the box and say they've got somebody but they never actually wanted to do any of the work. Mm. Um, and that, that became very frustrating. Whereas coming here they were they were ready, they were willing, they wanted to, to create something. So it was a really fantastic opportunity to come in and, and put a framework in place and own something from the start. So it was a difference in in, in a mind shift really? Massive. Yeah. Massive difference in mind shift. I think a lot of businesses don't realise what they have to do until something goes wrong. Yes. Um, having somebody do this role pre-GDPR um, was a bit like having an insurance policy. You never really realised the benefit of it until you, until you didn't have it. And I think you find a lot of organisations that had data breaches then took privacy much more seriously. But businesses that had never had a breach never took it seriously because there was never anything tangible to say. Hmm. You need to do this, you need to pay attention to this. It was just unfortunate for the business that they'd gone through what they, what had happened, but fortunate for me that when they came out the other side, you know, they were in a regulatory mindset, and they were willing to learn and, and ready to, to do something. There's a massive difference between those two businesses. Hmm. And with GDPR, data protection is, is pretty much a buzzword, but what does it mean for you? <laughs> yeah. So it's so data protection has become a buzzword. GDPR has become a hashtag. Um, <laughs> uh, my 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 fear is that people forget what it's what it's all about. So yeah. because it becomes like um, becomes something for LinkedIn, it becomes a sales tool, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think. 
there are parts of the GDPR that, that apply to, to lots of things. There's a commercial aspect to it. There's, there's software in it. There's consultancy services. There's all sorts of things. But underneath all of that, when you strip all of that away, data protection is about protecting the rights of an individual. So me, you, your parents, my parents, my children, my grandparents, the, the man on the street, the employees within your business, your customers. It's about making sure that you treat their information fairly, you treat it with respect, you use it in a manner in which they would expect you to. It's about building trust with people. It's about finding um, a way to work together that's beneficial for both for both you and and the consumer. So for me, it's it's about a whole world of things, but primarily it's about relationships. It's about having a trusted relationship between two people that you can say to that person, if you give me your information, if you buy a product from me, if you register for my services, if you fly on my plane, I promise I will do the following things. I will use your information fairly. I will treat it with respect. I will keep it secure. I won't bombard you with things you don't want to hear about. And for me, that's what data protection is really about. It's, it's looking after an individual's fundamental rights to privacy. So what's the difference between data protection and data privacy? I, I don't think there is a massive difference between the two, in my eyes. Data protection, data privacy, data security, they're all part and parcel of the same thing. I'd even add information security into that. You can't do this job if you don't work closely enough with your CISO or with your information security managers or your information security officers. There are different parts that people specialise in, so I specialise in, in the legislation, I specialise in the regulation, I specialise in, in finding ways to share information and consent and how we share data and how we do that. The information security guys focus on the operational side of things. Once that information is here, how do you keep it safe? What controls have you got? What's your antivirus? What are your firewalls like? So there are differences, but they're one and the same. They're different compartments of the same thing, and the same thing goes for data protection and, and data privacy. They're just, it's all the same thing. I don't think they should be separated. I don't think they should be looked at as separate things. They're just, they're just one and the same. And you mentioned that hashtag GDPR. So, what what does that mean to you as well, GDPR? GDPR is, for me, it's a, it's a, a fantastic opportunity to bring data protection to the forefront of organisations' minds, to the forefront of consumers' minds. It's a fantastic opportunity to give people freedom and choice and a better understanding of their information. It's an opportunity to build better relationships with your customers. It's an opportunity to get better insights into your customers. So, yes, it's a regulation. Yes, we have to do it. Yes, parts of it are going to be burdensome. But done properly, the benefits to, to both organisations and consumers are massive. You're, creating a better relationship with those people. You're letting them know why you want their information. They can choose what information they want to give you. By doing that, you know, and treating it fairly and being honest, you're more likely to get them to come back and buy other services. 
so for me, it, it is. It's a it's a massive opportunity to to make something really really good and to give some power back to the back to the people. Has GDPR affected your job? Yes and no. Um, I was very fortunate when I when I started here that I was given a very a very free remit to, to do what I wanted to do. Mm. So the framework that we put in place here was very robust. We put a number of controls in. GDPR has has added to that, but most of GDPR, eighty percent of GDPR isn't isn't new. It already exists. It exists in in different parts of the data protection act. It exists in parts of the the EU privacy directive. Things like DPIAs, um, appointing data protection officers, already exist in, in different countries and in different countries' data protection laws. So very little of it is actually new. So all it's really done is given us an opportunity to bolster our current framework, but it's brought it to the attention of the board, it's brought it to the attention of the exec, which has given me more buy-in. Mm better understanding from the company, better resources, a bit more money that I probably wouldn't have had before. And it's also given me an opportunity to talk to our customers, whereas previously I was never really at the, at the front of that. You know, when you're doing a piece of marketing, mm. you know, the top of your list isn't, oh, let's tell them about how well we look after their data. You know, that's, <laughs> it's in the T's and C's, or it's in the privacy notice, or it's hidden away. Yeah. But this has given the opportunity to say, hang on, let's put that at the, towards the front of what we're talking to them about, let's make it a, a selling tool. So it's it's just, it's brought it to the forefront, it's brought it to the, to the front of people's minds, which is really what it's done for me. So how else has it affected the business, would you say? It's made the business more aware of the information that it holds, mm. why it holds that information. It's made the business think more carefully about where it wants to be, what it wants to do, um, how it wants to act, what it wants to know about its customers, how it wants to talk to its customers. It's made them much more aware that people have a right, people have a right of access, people have a right of rectification, they have a right to be forgotten. It's also made our employees a lot more aware of their own rights, both here at work and in other organisations. I think it's again, it's back to that thing. It's bringing it to the to the forefront of people's minds, but it's yeah, it's, it's making people a lot more aware of it. Do you think this influenced or affected the company's values? That's a good question. So. We were very, again, we were very unfortunate because of because of what the business business went through. We were very fortunate of the outcome of that that, that we have a very clear set of um, customer promises, people promises. So we'd already started to put the customer at the heart of what we do. We would already started to make customer the centre of, of what we do. We were already working very hard to make sure that we were treating customers fairly, make sure they were getting the right information so they were buying the right products and services so they knew what they were getting. So I think we were already in a good a good place to do that. This has just given us something else to talk to them about. Hmm. Um, an added benefit if you like. 
So would you say all the steps that you're taking is improving the customer relationship with the business? Yes. Yeah, I think I probably would. We're, where the programme is today, all of this stuff is, is internal. So we're, we're, we're sat here talking today about all of this and all of this sits in my, in my programme team and we're, we're creating documentation and we're working on it. It hasn't reached the customer yet but we're already starting to see customers raise queries and, and ask questions about other things. We've already improved our subject access request process to make sure that we're getting information out to people better. Um, the future state, I think, yes, it would improve, improve the relationship with customers. The, the testing that we've done and the benchmarking that we've done on things like the marketing consent voting, what we have seen is that the customers much more receptive when you're open, when you're honest, when you're giving them information, when you're giving them choice. So I don't see any reason why that relationship wouldn't continue to improve with the more information that we're going out and supplying to people, and the more open we are. So I'm, I'm hoping that when all these customer comms go out, which will probably be in February time next year, that we will start to see more beneficial relationships being, being created. Like anything, you've got people, process, processes and tools. What would you say is the most important thing for, for what you do? People. Mm. Processes and tools are really, really useful. Um, tools are good if you're trying to do something repeatedly, or you do something large volumes, or you're trying to do something across a, a number of instances. So I think tools have a massive place in GDPR and there are some fantastic software vendors out there that are creating some fantastic solutions to some really tricky problems. But they're not the be all end all, there is no silver bullet, there is no piece of software that can that can do this for you. Processes are massively important, obviously. Everybody likes a rule. You know? Rules allow us to, to govern and allow us to control and allow us to, to demonstrate compliance. I've always said, when people write processes and procedures, never write something that you don't do. If you don't do it and you need to do it, start doing it and then write your process to match. Mm -hmm. To do all of those things though, you need people. You need the people buying. So you need the people to understand why you want them to do it, why it's important. To focus on it, to do it properly, to have the understanding, the awareness, the education, have the buy-in and the culture and the compliance because you can have the best tool in the world, you can have the best written processes in the world, but if the people don't use the tools and don't follow the processes, then none of it, none of it's relevant. So yeah, so for me, it's 100 percent, like 90 percent about about the people. Definitely. Going back on the point previous to that, what give us an example of what sort of data you would hold. So we're quite a controlled organisation in the information that we hold. Um, we're a general insurer, so we insure, or we create insurance products for the for the home. Um, we also do things like boiler installations uh, and some smart home devices. To deliver all of these things, generally we don't need anything more than your name, address, telephone number, and usually probably your email address. Beyond that we don't actually tend to hold a great deal of information. 
all of our payment information is, is done through third parties, so we don't keep any um, credit card or banking information um, in our systems. We don't even collect date of birth. You know, we, have, mm. we have no need to know how, how old our customers are. Our modeling and segmentation team would love to have date of birth, because um, obviously it's useful for a number of things. But primarily, we, we don't need it. We just we just don't keep it. So we keep a very small um, controlled set of set of data. Um, yeah, there's just there's just no need for us to hold anything else. You just mentioned that you don't. Sometimes there's other parties that take data, such as third parties. How do you audit them, especially any of your partners and any of the products you're selling? So the third parties are the things we generally leave to the information security team, so we have a robust set of due diligence, due, due, due diligence activities um, that are put in place when we when we onboard a third party. We take a risk-based approach to that, so we look at the volume of information that we're sending, the sensitivity of that information. They will then complete a due diligence questionnaire. That questionnaire will be reviewed and scored by the information security team. The information security team will either go back and say your controls aren't robust enough, or have you got more information on these controls? Sometimes they'll go out and do a site visit if it's a particularly sensitive, um, sensitive supplier. But it's all done on, on that sort of risk-based approach. So we don't go out and see every single supplier because we just we don't have the, the capacity to do that. But we do go out and visit the most high-risk processes. So you just trying to de-risk the situation as best as possible? Essentially, yes. Yeah, I think it's the only real way a business of this size can do it without having a, a, a team of people that are specifically sent out just to audit uh, third parties. There's, there's no real other way that, that, that we can manage it. So we talked about you know, the, the types of effects within the business we haven't touched on who it affects in the business. So who would you say you know, GDPR and data protection really affects in the business, the key stakeholders? So we have this debate quite a lot, actually. Mm. And it, 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 it varies massively. For me, most of this stuff is, is what I call back office stuff. So it's stuff for, for me to worry about the lawyers worry about it, the exec need to worry about it, the compliance teams need to worry about it. And those are the people that you want to understand it, that you want to learn it, and those are the people that you want to create the controls and the processes and work out where it matters in the business. So when we started this programme, one of the first things that some of the project guys wanted to do was actually start training the frontline staff so the people on the phone. And I said, no, because they're the last people that you train. Because you need all of this stuff to happen all the way along in the background before you get to the front line. When you get to the front line, the guys on the phone, all they need to know is that you've changed the way that you check somebody's identity, or you've changed the process for allowing some, you know, a spouse to contact you about um, their partner's policy, or you've changed the way that the deceased process works. All they need is an end product. They just need to be told what to do. Yes. To do that, you have to get all the people out the back 
working together and get those people to do it. So I would say it actually affects the people that you probably don't think it affects more than the people that you think it would affect. But it's it's a cultural thing. So it, it affects everybody in the end. Having said all of that, and having these are all these processes and these systems built and everything else, if the guy sat on the phone still gives information out to a another stranger that, that rings up without checking his identity, then everything that you've created is is falling over. So it affects everybody, but I think it has to start at the top and then mm. and then work its way down, and, and the impact gets lesser and lesser as it goes. I know you touched on it briefly there, but how do you actually go and educate people within the organisation? <laughs> uh, cake. <laughs> Quite often, um, so we're, I'm very fortunate here. So I have a, I have a team of, of what we call data protection champions, um, and I can use those individuals. They're dotted around the business different departments. I can use those individuals to talk to their teams and share insights into their teams. Um, I write newsletters. We have a, a legal team here, and our legal team do what they call horizon scanning, and they send out articles based on things that, that they've seen that are coming out and changes in legislation yeah. and some of those things are data protection. We have an internal social network called Yammer. We use that to, to push information out. Every year we have a, a clear desk week at the beginning of January when everyone's taking their Christmas decorations down. We also get them to empty their drawers, throw away all their waste paper. It's, it's little things like that. Um, we push people as much as possible to do incident reporting, so if something's been sent to the wrong place, however, however small, even if it's just an email with a, a customer's name on that's been been sent to the wrong employee, we try and get people to to report it, we try and get people to, to talk about it so it's not sort of swept under the carpet, it's not a dirty word, it's not a dirty incident or something like that. Mm. But it's, it's a very long process of, of, of cultural change and going out and, and educating and, and meeting people, getting in front of people. It's, massively important for me. Um, once people know what you look like and know what you sound like, they're far more likely to come and ask you questions or phone you up and, and come and talk to you. Very true. So yeah, you have to you have to get out and, and go and see people. Mm. And how do you how do you gloss data protection, you know, to make it more uh, excitable to certain people in the business that probably that will say they don't have time to have that meeting. Nobody's ever got any time. <laughs> no, time, time is of the essence. You have to. You've got to be a little bit of a salesman, of course. So you have to work out, or you have to try and pitch the benefits. Mm. So, what can I do that's going to benefit those people or that part of the business that will still get them to do the things that, that I need them to do? Mm. Um, that's a lot easier when you're talking to, to sort of marketing teams and those sorts of things because if they're saying no, 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 I don't want to do opt-in consent because I'm not going to have anybody consenting, then you have to sort of say no, what you will have, you may have less consent, but you'll have informed consent. People that want to hear from you, so you're going to have potentially less people to talk to, but people that actually want to hear from you, so your costs are going to be less. You're going to have any more, a more engaged database, so you're going to get better response. You could potentially make 
more money or more profit because you're not wasting money mailing people that, that don't want to hear from you. So you have to try and find the business benefits in everything you do. And you're going to struggle <laughs> in some departments. Yeah. But if you just walk in and say, you have to do this, they're going to, they're going to turn you away. If you walk in and say, there's a change in the regulation, you know, we need to do this. What's your current process? What's the best way to to get your current process to be like this? What can I do to help? Have you got any ideas? Have you seen it working anywhere else? If you work collaboratively, then you're more likely to to get people to do stuff. You're more likely to get buy-in. So would you say GDPR is actually providing more value for the data that's being held? Potentially. Mm. Yeah, definitely, potentially. It's making people think about the data that they've got and how, how good it is. Mm. Is it clean? Is it up to date? Is it accurate? So it's putting that in, in, in people's mindsets, and I think um, an outcome of that is potentially that yeah, data becomes becomes richer, it becomes cleaner, it becomes more valuable. You're separating the, the wheat from the, from the chaff, as they say, so you end up with a, a much better, much more informed, much more usable, or potentially much more usable set of information. So I think it has the potential to have that knock-on effect, yeah. Just as a base, yeah, as a platform. Yeah, yeah, massively. Everything that you've said so far is very much um, suggesting a bit like the conversation we had about, briefly about, about DevOps before this, is that it's very much a culture. Um, and would you say that it's a, it's a culture shift that would lead to this success in GDPR? I don't know if it's a, a shift or if it's a, a gradual curve. Mm. You, you have to have a, you have to have the buy-in from the, from the people for it to, for it to work differently. To get that buy-in, you have to to sell the benefits to them. You have to make them understand why you're why you're doing it, why it's important. If you don't have that buy-in and you don't have that journey from within your business, if you don't have that, you don't take your people on that journey, then yeah, I, I think you will struggle to succeed because there will always be opportunities to circumvent this stuff. Yeah. There's always the risk that people take the view that if you're you're only ever going to be looked at if you get in trouble so if you're always just under the radar or not quite in trouble or you've never never been in trouble before the ICO for instance then why would you get in trouble now so why so why do it so it's it is hard to get that foresight into people's minds you know, if it goes wrong and you haven't done these things you're going to be in a lot less of a position than you are Today, when yes. it goes wrong and you haven't done anything, the powers are much greater. The requirement for accountability is much greater. So yeah, to do it successfully, I think you have to get a, a good culture in place. I think you have to get your people on board. Do you think that data protection could be and, and will be, especially in the future, be linked to the success of the business overall? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it can be. I think it becomes a what we like to call added value. Mm. So you're it, go, it goes all the way back to, to building customer relationships. 
to in this society and in, in, in the world we live in today, you want more insights about your customers. You want more information. You want to understand more about those about those people. The GDPR is forcing people to be more transparent. So it's forcing you to say, I want more information about you. Now the instant reaction that you get when you say to somebody, thanks for giving me your name and your address, can I have your telephone number? Or why do you want that? Mm. Well, just so we can, you know, we can ring you, or why do you want to ring me? Oh, it's just, just in case, just in case. It's not important. Whereas if you say, well, it's so that we can help manage your account better. So if we're missing some information, we can call it, we can get out to you quicker. It means that when the engineers come into your house, we can ring you and tell you that the engineer is on the way. Mm. Fantastic. Okay, yeah, well, in that case, you can have my telephone. So it's pushing people to, to be clearer about why they want information and what they're going to do with that information, which in turn will create better relationships with the customers. You'll get more trust from your customers. And those customers are more likely to want to, to share more or buy more products, and therefore you get better insights. And then that relationship continues to grow and that's and that's where you get loyalty from and that's where you get people that will stay with you and will stay as a customer for a long time. So I think it, it gives a good opportunity to, to push that side of things definitely. How do you audit yourself as a business? So I, I'm not allowed to, to audit myself. I'm not allowed to, to mark my own homework as I get mm. as I often get told. We have um, we have an internal audit team that, that take care of that. They audit the program. PwC have just audited the implementation of the program, and they're coming back next year to do a second stage audit to, to see where we are towards the end of the program. We have quality assurance teams, we have compliance teams, we have risk and governance teams that look at all of our materials, look at the way that we're talking to customers, look at the stuff that, that I produce that makes all of this customer friendly. So there's a, a lot of checkpoints where people mm. come and look. But yeah, the main checking is done by is done by the ICO. And then I monitor complaints metrics to look at number of complaints around people receiving email or SMS, volume of marketing that they've received. I monitor consent rates, so how many people have given consent to marketing for their email and SMS. And then we cross-reference that if we've changed the, the permission statement so we can see whether people are understanding what they're consenting to or if they're... If we've got a massive consent rate or something and we've changed the consent statement and we've got 90% consent rate and we're thinking this is fantastic. And then you look at the complaints and the complaints have gone through the roof because everybody's saying, why are you telling me this? I never consented to this. Yeah. Then you know what you're telling them isn't, isn't true and isn't honest and they don't know what they're consenting to. But if you've got a good consent rate and a low complaint rate, you know that people are bought in and, and, they're, and they're understanding stuff. So I, I self-audit in, in that respect, but most of it is done from, from a third party from an internal audit perspective. How, how do you look to improve regularly? So we monitor all of the complaints on a quarterly basis. So we have, uh, or I chair something called the HTML Data Protection Forum which is where we have all of our champions from around the business. They all produce metrics for, for each area of their business. We monitor those, those metrics on a quarterly basis. They're all benchmarked, so we try and make sure that we stay under a, under a certain level. We're always looking for ways to 
to improve or if we see a spike in complaints, you know, we'll, we'll go and look at a process or a control and we'll, and we'll try and tweak that process or control. In all honesty, for me, if something's not broke, I don't try and fix it. I think once you get to a, a, a good level, there's only so much, so much more that you can do. There's always other things that, that need to focus on. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to always improve. What does a what does a data protection champion look like to you then? <laughs> they look like everybody else. Mm. They are people from around the business that have a, have an interest either in data protection or compliance. They've got a bit of an eye for the detail. They take a, a genuine interest in, in what we do. They have a good understanding of their business area. They're respected in their business area and they have gravitas and impact in the area of the business that they work. But it can be anybody. We've got people right the way from director of level right the way down to, to frontline guys. And they're all dotted in different areas of the business. They all do different things. But the, the key thing is that they all care. They all take an interest in it. Um, and so they all have a clear understanding of what happens in their business area so they, they see processes, they see the changes so they can understand where things are going wrong and they can pick things up so that's, that's really really important if somebody doesn't want to do it or they're not doing it properly there's no point trying to make them because you just get no benefit from them Last question for other organisations because I know you're far down the line is it too late to start preparing for GDPR. It's never too late. Mm. The thing, the one pet hate that I have, and I and I and I raised this um, at a lecture that Steve Wood from the Deputy Information Commissioner was doing um, in, in London a couple of months ago. The the twenty fifth of May is not and never has been a deadline. Mm. Don't treat it like one. Yes, you have to be compliant by the 25th of May, but that doesn't mean that all this stuff just ends on the 25th yes. of May. The 25th of May is just the beginning. It's the start of the next 20 or 30 years of, of data protection and, and privacy law. It's the beginning of everything. The e-privacy regulations are coming. There's all sorts of things that are going to come off the, off the back of this. So it's it's never ever too late to start. If you, as long as you're doing something that's better than, than doing nothing, mm. it doesn't matter whether you start today or whether you start tomorrow. Just get going. But whatever you do, for one moment, don't think that all you have to do is get to the 25th of May and then you can stop. That's not the case. Once you get to the 25th of May, the hard work starts because that's when people start getting fined under the new regime. That's when people start getting regulated under the new regime. And that's when you're going to see a shift in, in the way organisations work and, in, and the impact that this is really going to have on people. Okay, excellent way to finish. So we're going to finish as we all, always do with 10 quick fire questions. You ready? <laughs> yeah, go on. What turns you on professionally? Busting myths. What turns you off professionally? Not being able to bust myths. <laughs> How do you unwind? 
glass of wine in the gym. Not at the same time. I was literally, <laughs> that was going to be my next question after that. What profession other than your own would you like to try? I really want to be a professional hospitality individual. I went, to, I went for dinner once and there was a guy there and his sole, his sole job was to sit and get people talking. Mm. That was his job. They bring him into dinner and I, yeah, I want to do that. What activity <laughs> gives you the most energy? Probably going to the gym. Who is your biggest inspiration? That's a very good question. Very, very good question. I don't know. I have a lot of people that, that do a lot of really good stuff for me. Um, and all of those people inspire me to, to do better. Name someone. Oh, my children. My dad. All of my data protection champions, everybody in this business, yeah, a lot of people. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be a subject? Privacy. You were at your best when you were doing what? This job. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you like to impart? Never say no. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say is the reason he is letting you through the gates? <laughs> um, glad you could join us. <laughs> That's a great way to finish. I'm so glad you corrected yourself when you said about wine and gym. Thank you for today. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Out on Twitter and LinkedIn.